Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Justin Nordell. He is the executive director of the Philadelphia Folk Song Society, presenters of the oldest continuously run outdoor music festival in the North America, the Philadelphia Folk Festival. Previously, he worked as an ADR director and scriptwriter for Funimation Entertainment, a director at the Philadelphia Film Festival, written for Philadelphia Magazine and We Live Entertainment, and even managed a Planned Parenthood Oh my God, there's so many things. Welcome to the show, Justin. It is so good to be here. It's so excited to talk with you finally. And I, I have a question. Do you, do you live in Philadelphia? Uh, I, I, I do. I do. I'm currently <laughs> rather culturally promiscuous in the city of Philadelphia. Hey, I love where that. In, where in Philly do you live? Um, so uh, that answer has changed recently. I bought a house during the pandemic. Oh my god! Uh, wow. <laughs> my fiance, we uh, we bought in the Point Breeze section of Philadelphia, so um, South Philadelphia. Oh, cool! Oh my gosh, it's amazing. For the last few years, I lived in the Italian market, which is mm. exactly like in Rocky. There are just the <laughs> fruit stands out front, and everyone's yelling at each other, and you can get, like, enough asparagus to last you a month for $2. It is a magical place. Love it. I love, love Philadelphia. It. Philadelphia is a magical place. Maybe it's I, I don't live there, and I just love going there, but it's an amazing city. Well, the nice thing about Philadelphia is that you can very quickly get down to D.C. You can get up to New York. Um, and Philadelphia itself is just a little bit more manageable and affordable than those two. So <laughs> it's definitely uh, definitely been a great place to set up shop. OK, so can you take us back to the beginning? How did you get introduced to horror? I was first introduced to horror via a stuffed animal. 
My oh. maternal grandmother was a bit of a Maxinista, um, so she would frequent TJ Maxx. Um, and when <laughs> I was two years old, she saw the cutest brown and white stuffed animal and brought it home to me and gave me my very first Gizmo the Mogwai. And I had a Gizmo stuffed animal at the age of two, not knowing Aww. anything else about it, but it was my favorite thing in the world. Gizmo came with me to the Smithsonian. Gizmo came with me to see Cats the Musical. Uh, Gizmo got put in the mail a lot because I'd leave him places. Um, But uh, Gizmo was my favoriteest thing in the universe. I still have it uh, to this day. And uh, when I received this amazing little critter, um, my parents were like, well, what is this? And then they looked, oh, it's a PG movie. Great. So I was (laughs) two... Um, and watched Gremlins for the first time. And my mother was horrified, like, we should turn this off, so on and so forth. But I was two inches from the screen and giggling with delight. Um, so I think she was worried that she may have a uh, <clears throat> special child, uh, which, you know, she really did. Um, but I was just absolutely obsessed with Gremlins. And then when Gremlins 2 came out, I had my first exposure to camp um, and uh, just absolutely loved, loved, loved Gremlins 2. Um, and I was absolutely somebody that just watched and devoured so much media as a child. Uh, Gremlins 2 is so good. Gremlins 2 is great. And it's Better kind than of, the first you know, one. You're it absolutely, and it's because of the just camp elements that they fully lean into. Um, camp horror is something that I watched a lot of when I was younger and didn't even know or realize or, or think what it was. It was just I kept gravitating towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents uh, divorced when I was eight, and uh, my father would take us for the weekends. And so when I would have my dad weekends, which were uh, once or twice a month, he would take us to the video store. Uh, and so I would go in and go to the the VHS section and go to um, the horror area uh, and I was a big old cover slut. If you had something wonderful on the cover it was coming home with me. Um, House with a disembodied hand absolutely oh, yeah. loved ding it. Ding dong, you're dead. Ding dong, you're dead. I mean, it was, if you had a nice eye-catching cover, it was coming home. But then as I got into my, you know, uh, double digits, like 10, um, I decided that I really should start to, to go through horror. So I started renting in alphabetical order. 976 Evil came home first. Oh my and if God. you put a horror movie out in the 80s, early 90s that started with an A, B, C, D, or E, I have most likely seen it. <laughs> Um, and uh, I absolutely just loved, loved, loved and devoured so many um, films during that time. I also had an aunt uh, who wa- worked for HBO and, and cable companies, and she um, gave me um, uh, like individual uh, Betamax tapes of Fraggle Rock uh, that I got to watch all of the episodes of Fraggles as a kid, and I had stuffed Fraggles. Um, and in fact, my first pet, I named him Wembley, um, and <laughs> after my favorite Fraggle, and we um, would watch all of the Jim Henson um, oeuvre, um, everything from um, The Storyteller, if you remember the the HBO series The Storyteller, oh, yeah. where they would do all of the really great um, Greek myths and, and all of these wonderful folktales 
journalists from around the world, um, and they all had a very, very kind of um, dark or horror lean and lens to them, and I, I loved them growing up. Of course, Labyrinth, of course, Dark Crystal, um, and just so many other things. Uh, and then my grandmother, the one that is the Maxinista that gave me Gizmo, she loved her murder mysteries. She was reading <laughs> Sue Grafton. A is for alibi, um, B is for uh, boys, C is for cocksuckers, whatever it was. Um, she was just going through, oh, if I haven't announced yet, ladies and gentlemen, I am a homosexual. Um, and uh, she would be reading all of these movies, uh, or sorry, all of these uh, murder mystery books, and she had one author she loved, Rita Mae Brown. Um, now, Rita Mae Brown did the Cat Who books, um, which was like the cat who killed the canary, the cat who, oh, um, yep. you know, went outside. And it was about this single woman and her corgi and her cat that solved mysteries. But Rita <laughs> Mae Brown also wrote a movie called Slumber Party Massacre. Mm. And when I was still in single digits, I convinced Grandma that we should watch this murder mystery by her favorite <laughs> author. <laughs> Called the Slumber Party Massacre. Sneaky. How did that go over? Oh my god. Well, Grandma thought that it was absolutely gratuitous. uh, And (laughs) however, it was the start of watching many, many slasher films with my grandmother. Um, And every time we would watch them, she would, because they're just lowbrow murder mysteries. So for her, we'd watch it and she'd go, oh, the boyfriend did it. I remember Black Christmas, the boyfriend did it. It's the boyfriend. It's definitely the boyfriend. And then in the end, when it's no one, how, who, how, oh, so frustrating for Grandmama. I love her. I love her. What an amazing person. Also, when you said cover slut, I now want to make t-shirts that say cover slut (laughs) and have like a cover, like a movie, like a VHS cover on it. That's Mm -hmm. so fucking funny. Because I feel like so many people that we've talked to and that I know are like that. So just like call yourself a cover slut. Absolutely. I was was growing up. Man, those covers. (laughs) Mm. Did something. Uh, so we know what your first horror movie is, but where, what were some of your, your favorites growing up? It sounds like you kind of threw out a few. Were those like the top tier of, of the movies that you loved growing up? Those were certainly favorites. Um, I had a lot of um, movies that um, were, were very kind of influential in my, my love of, of horror. Um, that aunt that worked for the cable company, she also was a huge huge Stephen King fan. Um, okay. And I was a yeah. voracious reader as a child. Um, and so I think I was probably six or seven when she gave me Night Shift for the first time and was oh like, oh, boy. read some short stories and they're, you know, uh, accessible. Um, and I remember she gave me Pet Cemetery, and I did a third grade book report on it. Um, one Just of the many <laughs> times I got sent to the principal's office um, for reading. I got sent to the principal's office for reading. Oh, my God. I probably shouldn't have been reading that. But also, I was well, a bit of a sassy child, too, so it didn't help. What? This, right. this does not track. In first grade, when Mrs. Iborg <laughs> passed out my copy of Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? I took the book from her and said, you've got to be kidding me. Oh. I'm reading Stuart Little. And I got sent to the principal's office. And then I had to read Stuart Little out loud to the principal. And then I got put in a special reading group, which meant I sat by myself in the corner and read whatever I wanted. Best thing that ever happened to me. Wow. I can't believe... I love that. You have got to be kidding me. (laughs) This is not for me. This is, like, way below my reading level. (laughs) 
Which fair though? Like if you can be reading Stuart Little, why would you want to read that? Like you'd be like, I want to go read actual like long books that are fun. Right. Chapter books. Like everybody remembers the first time you started actually getting to chapter books, how exciting that was. Exactly. So I watched a, a lot of um, horror movies again. I went alphabetical um, through, and I had one that was a particular favorite growing up called Aerobicide, um, which now goes by the name Killer Workout. Um, it's available on Amazon Prime, so if you've never seen it, I do yourself a favor. I sing its praises every time I can. It is the 80s horror movie of all time. It is... Um, someone is killing off people that work out at this gym with a giant safety pin. That is the murder weapon. And these people are like, oh no, someone died. Okay, let's go work out again. It is essentially eight workout videos with murders in between. It is camp, 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 camp. And I had no idea why as a child I loved this movie so much. I probably rented it when I was nine or ten and I rented it again and again and then I ended up buying that copy of that VHS from uh, the um, video store when they started getting rid of their collection. Um, And I just love this movie and I loved so many other weird and wonderful campy um, 80s horror movies that now when I go back and look at them, I'm like, ooh, hide and go shriek was problematic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the big problem going back and watching movies from, from your childhood is when you're like, oh, shit, this would not fly today. Right for sure. Yeah. Transitioning to being to to the adult, what draws you to horror now as opposed to being a kid? When I was a kid, there were a lot of things that I think I was very logical. Like Jaws cannot get me. I am not in the water. Um, so oh, you relate. know, Jaws is is scary, but it's not fully scary. But I was vivid imagination so the things that terrorized me as a child were more like larger concepts and it's which is funny Mm. um like uh care bears the movie too which i lovingly call care bears go to hell if you haven't seen it it is literally care bears battle satan in an underground lair um (laughs) it 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 is it holds up um but terrified me because all of these children had all of their personalities stolen and all of the care bears got got trapped in inside uh um, a crystal chandelier and for me as a small child like my eternal soul could be trapped inside of this thing that's terrifying and, and little nemo adventures in slumberland same thing as a kid like my eternal soul could go in so as a child i was very very concerned about my eternal soul um did you grow up ad- catholic <laughs> very jewish okay. um, <laughs> never mind <laughs> yeah no 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 but you know you, you scratch a jew there's a catholic underneath i mean there's definitely a lot of the same similarities catholicism just had a sequel <laughs> we were all about that old testament um but you know there, there's definitely some some similarities there but I, I had all of these very like concerns about my um you know well, well-being whereas when i got older it's very much more straightforward it's things that that unnerve and upset me and that I um, think could actually happen. Um, so, you know, or even if they're higher concepts. So I love um, folk horror, ironically, um, so much. Um, and uh, other things that have terrified me in recent years. Um, Host, uh, It Follows, um, The Vigil um, was mm, amazing. The vigil. But then there are 
non-horror movies that have elements that just terrify me. Um, I mean, uh, Beanpole, which came out last year. It's an amazing, amazing film with really wonderful queer elements, beautifully shot. Um, But there are just some really, really upsetting portions of that film that it's not a horror movie. It's very much a drama, but there are are things that that are in that film that that terrify me as an adult. Um, You know, Shiva Baby, great film that came out. Um, Also very Jewish, but, you know, that's probably the most anxiety I've had in a movie in years. Like, that is... I can't... Like, it was like a horror... It was like watching a horror movie, though. Like, it, it... It feels like that because of the anxiety and the tension that is just ramping up that entire film. Like it is like, I feel like I'm going to vomit. It's just too much. But it's also so fucking good, though. Like that movie is amazing. I own it. I haven't watched it yet. I need to get on that. (laughs) And it's gay. It's so beautifully gay. Yeah, I adore that film. It's definitely one of my favorites of this year. But when I watched it, I was like, oh, my God, this is a panic attack. I'm like, everyone that described how uncut gems affected them, I'm like, Mm. Shiva Baby is my uncut gems. Like, I am just like, my palms are sweating. I don't know. This is not okay. And I loved, 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 loved it. When Shiva Baby feels like so much more real like realistic to me like i feel like i have like i grew up catholic but i feel like i've been to similar parties where it's like everyone is badgering you and everyone's asking you questions and that anxiety alone is just like the most like i i, I cannot i'm gonna pass out this is like every party family party i went to growing up so it's just like no that's okay mm. i don't need to be exposed <laughs> to that ever again <laughs> wow yeah i need to i need to watch it it's so it. worth your time. I mean, other films, um, I again, growing up, I just loved all of those Gremlins, Critters, Munchies, Troll, you know, all of those those kind of um, Hobgoblins, Ghouls, and, and Thingoolies, um, that mm. entire kind of collection of small creatures that ruin your life um, really, really were great. But now I watch them, and it's just for enjoyment purposes. Mm-hmm. When I watch something that... Um, you know, is like the the strangers where anything can happen. It can be grounded in the reality of this film. You know, it follows was terrifying because it was so grounded in its own reality. Um, and anything and anyone could be anything. Um, and it's definitely a lot of uh, J horror really uh, mm. affected me as I grew up. Um, when I so I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. It was the end of the line of a train station. So as soon as I was old enough to read the train schedule, I was like. 12, 13, started sneaking down to the city. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. Um, And I would go down. And when you get out at Jefferson Station in Philadelphia, you go south. The city's there. It's bustling. It's amazing. It's great. But you go north. You're in Chinatown. And my stupid little Camp Rita map brain was like, Philadelphia is Chinatown. So I would take the train down and never leave Chinatown because they had just so many amazing foods and snacks and plum wine that they would serve to you as a child. Um, And (laughs) they had this laundromat that had clamshell subtitled VHS tapes Mm. and that's where I got my copies of Ringu and uh, Battle Royale and Dark Water um, and um, uh, Suicide Club and so many great 
films that really have lingered with me into my adulthood um, because of the the themes and the elements um, that really were character based. So for me, mm-hmm. horror is about character, and, and that's what draws me in. Um, and the other thing about horror that's so great, the community. I love being a horror fan because I get to interact with amazing people like you both. Aww. And then there's just so <laughs> many other wonderful people that are out there that are just so passionate. Like, they're just you know, are plenty of, of Wayfair uh, horror fans, but so many people that just love this genre and want to talk about it. And I love that. So I, ha- I have to ask going into kind of your, um, your, your career, I, the one that jumps out at me that surprised me every time I, I see it is the, you being an ADR director for Funimation Entertainment. How did that come to be? Well, uh, I slept with the right person. Um, and, uh, <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Sorry, mom. Um, no, uh, I... <laughs> That's going to be the title of this episode. Sorry, Justin's mom. Sorry, Justin's mom. <laughs> um, but in all honesty, I um, was with my friends down in Baltimore. Uh, this is sometime in the mid-early aughts. Um, and I was down there and met a gentleman named Chris. We had a whirlwind weekend fling, um, and it was so much fun, and he was wonderful, and he was a voice actor, um, and he lived down in Houston, so I would then go down and visit him, and uh, we kind of tried doing a little long-distance thing, um, and spoiler alert, didn't work out, but we are still friends to this day, um, and he was doing a lot of voices for a number of different uh, anime and video games at the time, and he um, is probably best known for um, playing Greed in Full Metal Alchemist um, and Sosuke in Full Metal Panic and a number of other great and wonderful uh, classic shows um, and tons and tons of video games and and other stuff. So um, while he and I were together, I met some of his friends and colleagues, um, one of whom is my friend Monica. Uh, And Monica is best known for being uh, one of the American voices of Hello Kitty. Like for a while there, when you like squeezed a Hello Kitty, it would be Monica's voice and she did the I'm Hello Kitty cartoon and the Hello Kitty claymation. And um, she's uh, currently the voice of Froppy on My Hero Academia. <gasps> no fucking way! Sorry. Right? I know. Froppy she's... is like my favorite character. <laughs> so I'm like, I love Froppy. I love oh, you, Monica. It's, it's <laughs> such a great, 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 great character. Monica is one of my favorite human beings on the face of this planet. And uh, Monica... Um, when Chris and I broke up, Monica was like, Chris, I love you, but you're crazy. I'm keeping Justin in the divorce. And so Monica (laughs) and I stayed pretty good friends. Um, and then Monica started, uh, as an ADR director at Funimation Entertainment. And I, uh, came down to visit her. And when I was down visiting her and hanging out, she threw me in the booth. And for the first time, I got to do some voice acting. Um, I did some background characters on this show called Shuffle, which is about demon girls that are trying to work through their trauma. Fuck yeah, I want to watch that show. (laughs) That show is awesome. I also got to do a show called Shin-Chan, which was on Late Night Cartoon Network. um, And it was so foul and filthy that it did not continue on Late Night Cartoon Network. Oh my Um, god. I will never forget... The first line that I ever got to say when I got put in that booth was, <clears throat> That's the mouth hooker that gave me gonorrhea. 
Um, oh. <laughs> so that was a sample of uh, some of the wonderful things that they had on that show. Um, but uh, I got to do that, which was super, super cool and fun. I go back. I'm going about my life. Um, and then an opportunity uh, presents itself at Funimation. Um, so I just decided to um, leave the education uh, world behind that I was currently working. And I was working um, doing education publishing. I wrote middle school social studies and English curriculum. Um, oh, and, boy. Yeah, I know. So much fun, right? Um, and then uh, came went down to Funimation and uh, shadowed uh, a really great uh, director, Joel. And then after... A little bit of time, they let me cut my teeth, and I, I did uh, a show called Spice and Wolf, which is essentially Oregon Trail, um, but with a wolf goddess. Um, it's literally like two amazing humans go on this journey through like medieval Europe, um, selling things, bartering, so on and so forth. And I was like, this is a lovely show. I have no idea who's going to watch it. And then it was this huge hit. It got a second season. Um, there's a VR game of it for the Oculus now. Like, it is just this wonderful, wonderful series um, that uh, I had the pleasure of, of having it be my first show. Um, and then after that, I got to do a number of different things. Um, I directed a show called Sergeant Frog, which was essentially Pinky in the Brain with alien frogs. It was just these five frogs that came to take over the world, and they suck at it! And um, <laughs> that one was so much fun because I got to um, do some... Uh, writing and rewriting work on it um, just to make sure all of the jokes hit um, and it was very fun because we didn't know if the show was going to be TVPG or TVMA. Oh no! So, oh no! <laughs> so we would do one take where the joke would be about snow, and another take where the joke would be about cocaine. And we'd do one joke where it would be about a um, scarecrow, and one joke where it would be about Michael Jackson molesting children. Um, and we were oh. like, surely they will um, pick one. And then the show was released as uh, TVPG. And some of my uh, cocaine and Michael Jackson and uh, Corey Haim jokes all made it in. Oh, oops. Wow. But so much fun. Um, it, it was truly like a dream come true getting to every day go to work, lock myself in a tiny, tiny space um, with absolutely eccentric and wonderful humans um, and just take these wonderful um, shows and properties from Japan and, and put English dialogue on them. And it's a really, really interesting process on, on kind of how all of that works because a lot of people get really angry that it's different from the dub. And as somebody that then got to be a writer, you know, the, the Japanese word for I, as in I am talking to Terry and Mary Beth, is watashi. That is three bloody syllables. How the fuck am I going to be faithful to what you're saying and fill three flaps with I, I, I? No, you have to adapt it so that it fits and you don't get the old speed racer thing where the mouth right. keeps moving. Yeah. So it was my favorite aspect of the job was trying to fit the flaps. Was That's trying so fucking to, cool. It's, it's a very interesting way to write because you're writing to animation that already exists. You have a story that you have to tell, but you can absolutely embellish or um, put in character flourishes or go back to the source material. A lot of things were based off of video games or comic books or, or manga um, and uh, go and check out what the, the different things um, are and try to 
insert that in different ways into the material. So sometimes people would be really excited and love some of the things we did. Sometimes there would be people who would be like, this is terrible. You changed the meaning of uh, something, something. And I was like, I'm sorry. I was told to make it funny. So cocaine. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. casual. As, as you do. As you do. <laughs> You also were involved with the Philadelphia Film Festival before you became involved with the Philadelphia Folk Song Society and the Philadelphia Folk Festival. That's a lot of festivals. I love a good festival, Terry. Yeah. Um, but for me, when I um, left Funimation and uh, it was basically what, what happened was um, I got on the writing team and I got to uh, first show that I worked on uh was called world destruction and that was based on like a nintendo ds game and it was talking animals and the apocalypse and all sorts of fun stuff and i got to write this show and it was so much fun and i was really really homesick i was living uh, the studio for funimation's dallas fort worth i'm from say it with me people Philadelphia. And so I was getting really homesick for Philly. And so I asked if I could write from anywhere. Um, And they're like, sure, we've got people in LA and Austin. And I'm like, Philadelphia. And they said, sure, sure, sure. That's fine. So I got to go on the writing team. When you're working from home, (laughs) as we've all found out over the last year, things can get a little stir crazy. And when you're just doing script writing, you kind of bang out your episodes um, pretty quickly. And then I would only get stuff every month. So there was definitely time where I'd be like, do, 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 do. So I ended up doing some freelance arts marketing because I am, as I said earlier, culturally promiscuous. Um, And I started doing some work with the Pennsylvania Ballet. Um, in Philly, which is an amazing company. And the Pennsylvania Ballet Dancers were actually all of the background dancers in Black Swan, um, which was really, really a wonderful opportunity for them. And I knew this, and um, Black Swan, of course, had its premiere, North American premiere at TIFF, um, but I knew some people at the Philadelphia Film Festival and said, hey, I'm with the ballet. I think we could do a really great um, connection. And so for the Philadelphia Film Festival, um, we actually had the North American premiere of Black Swan um, with the ballet dancers who were the backup dancers in um, the, the the film. And we were able to have Darren Aronofsky come down um, and just had an amazing time. And I always loved film. So I kind of used that as my foot in the door and continued to stay in touch and uh, to to continue to do some stuff with them. And then when the opportunity came to jump ship from the ballet and go to the film festival, I absolutely welcome the chance because the Philadelphia Film Festival was growing up where I saw Tale of Two Sisters for the first time um, oh. and The Descent in a full packed house audience. Just like horror memories that you cannot get um, anywhere else and it was just something that it had such a great um, part of my um, film uh, awareness and upbringing that I wanted to be a part of that so uh, when I joined their staff I then got to work with them to help do everything from um, solicit for um, films to come and join the roster and uh, be on the jury and and review and look at all sorts of great uh, shorts and stuff that were coming in Um, worked with our membership base um, 
helped coordinate a ton of stuff and getting the prints all over the city because uh, Philadelphia she she cute but she's wide um, she's wide so was, she's very wide she wide she thick so she had we had to get prints from one end of the city to the other and you know all sorts of fun stuff we had the uh, Alex de la Iglesia film uh, The Last Circus and uh, that's an amazing film however they sent us a digital copy of the film that would only unlock at the time that the film started however um <clears throat> They did it for the Spain time zone, not the American time oh. zone. So, you know, all sorts of fun things that happen during a film festival. So I'm up there in front of the audience vamping and being like, <laughs> how about that Perdita Durango, huh? <laughs> um, which uh, is another amazing Alex de Iglesia film that I highly, highly, highly recommend. Um, but working with a film festival was such a joy and then, as it went on, uh, this may not be the case for other people, it sucked a lot of the joy out of film. Because when you are working with um, amazing actors and, and directors um, and getting to watch films constantly, it sort of becomes for work. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. 100%. Mm-hmm. I feel that way sometimes with our, like, with you being mm-hmm. writers <laughs> and, like, podcasters, I feel like that sometimes where it's like, movies are work now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, because I loved film so much, it was really difficult to, um, you know, have something that I loved become a little bit of a, of a burden um, and something that I had to do. Um, so the, the longer I was there, I started kind of dabbling with some other stuff. Um, I had the director of a law firm uh, offer me a job and I was her director of business development and I hopped ship from uh, film and then I was there for a little bit and went, oh no, I hate for-profits. Um, no offense to anyone that works in a for-profit day job. Uh, but I eventually found myself at the Philadelphia Folk Song Society and the Philadelphia Folk Festival. Cool. Wow. Dang, what a cool career. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, the difference between music festivals and film festivals to me is is night and day. And I love film festivals. I will attend every film festival. But it's so passive. Whereas when it comes to music, it's all about that instant gratification. And mm. so because of that, I really kind of found myself enjoying working with um, musicians more. And sometimes I've gotten to have the overlap. There's plenty of amazing musicians that um, are also actors and vice versa. Jeff Daniels um, came and played my uh, festival from uh, Arachnophobia, Dumb and Dumber, The Newsroom. He's an incredible blues guitar player. Very really? few people know that. Yes. I didn't Ridiculously know Ridiculously talented. Wow. Nine albums to his name. Wow. Holy shit. Wow. And the reason that Jeff knew about our festival is that uh, Johnny Gallagher Jr., who you may know from Underwater, um, he was also a Belko Experiment. Um, he won the Tony for Spring Awakening on Broadway. Um, Johnny grew up going to the Philadelphia Folk Festival. And when he was on the newsroom with Jeff Daniels in between takes, they would jam in their trailers. And he was like, oh, man, you've got to play Philly. It's such a great time, so on and so forth. So when we booked Jeff, I made sure that Johnny would be able to be there. And we surprised uh, uh, Johnny at, at Jeff's show, and they ended up just jamming like they used to do on the newsroom oh, for so cool. uh, on an hour on stage, which was pretty darn wonderful. That's so fucking cool. That's awesome. Wow. Awesome. I actually grew up going to the Philadelphia Folk Festival as well. Um, so that's where my love of folk music came from. Uh, my parents actually met at the Philadelphia Folk Festival. Um, I went to my first one at four months old, um, and I am currently 35, so this will be my 36th 
festival this year because I will be 36 and four months or 35 and four months when uh, the festival happens this year. Uh, my mother Dang. actually met all four of her husbands at the Philadelphia Folk <laughs> Festival. So if you are single, ladies, it is a happy hunting ground. <laughs> Sorry, Justin's mom. <laughs> Oh, that was kind of a mic drop moment right there. I feel like we can't keep like we gotta end on that note. Like, sh- all right, no more tremors. Just talking about <laughs> Justin's mom meeting all four. Wow, that's amazing. Your mm-hmm. mom sounds cool. My mom is super cool. Uh, it was interesting because she wasn't a big fan of of horror things, but she would knew that I was, and so you know she would tell me we were going to Kmart. But surprise, Batman Returns. Um, you know, which Aww. was. Great, although I think I really wanted to go to Kmart that day, so I was a little upset at first, but then there was popcorn and Michelle that. Pfeiffer. Right. <laughs> now that we've talked about your amazing career and your cool-ass mom, um, Justin, what movie are we talking about today? We are talking about Tremors. Tremors! Okay, y'all, so in Tremors, the natives of a small, isolated town defend themselves against strange underground creatures which are killing them one by one. Bum, bum, bum. That's it. So, Justin, take us back. Tell us your horror story. When did you see this film? How did you see this film? What about it scared you? Go. So I was six years old and I was just one of those VHS covers that you saw and it was so eye grabbing because what hashtag cover slut it was Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward um, and uh, the female lead who were up there and just this giant subterranean worm thing that was going to swallow them whole and I had seen Beetlejuice I knew what subterranean worms were I could totally handle this also (laughs) it was PG and by it was PG I mean I held my finger over the 13 when I showed it to my parent and said hi dad can we please watch this it has Reba McIntyre. It couldn't possibly be bad. <laughs> oh, that is a great trick. So we bring home Tremors, and I think, like, I've, I've got this in the bag. You know, my I we had watched uh, Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear recently, um, which, you know, is great for a six-year-old. Um, so but that was, what, did what? you even know what was going on in that movie <laughs> when you were six? All. I was like, you're six. You got no fucking idea what's going on in what? that movie. Just I like... will say, in Cape Fear, that was probably the first time as a child that I saw that, like, bad things can happen to good people. And that definitely resonated me with me as a child child and I saw like pools of blood and all of those things and I, I handled it. I was good. I could follow um, you know, Cape Fear. Although it definitely terrified me of Robert De Niro's sidebar. Did you ever have an actor growing up that like because they had a role, they like scared you? Fuck, who was that for me? My sister's was no. Gary Sinise because he oh. played this like military veteran pedophile in Jack the Bear with Danny DeVito. And my sister, whenever she saw him, thought like he was this crazy pedophile that was going to kill everyone in the movie. And so it had to be turned off. Spoiler alert, Gary Sinise is bad in 90% of the movies he's in. I'll be fair. Okay, so you thought you could handle this movie. Yes, totally have it. And so we go home and we pop it in. Um, and the way that the house was laid out, I sat on um, our couch in the basement. And uh, so it was kind of the, the lower part of the home. And so I'm sitting there with my dad and watching Tremors. 
underground. Um, and it was definitely the first thing that really freaked me out was our friend, Farmer Fred, um, who was just trying to tend to his flock. Um, and when Farmer Fred is kind of eaten by this unknown thing, he gives this blood-curdling scream. His eyes bulge out of his head. And all that's left is that tan hat. The tan hat. My dad had that same hat. So oh, I was no. like, oh my God, whatever these things are, eat dads with tan hats. <laughs> this is terrifying. <laughs> I was so scared by this, and then it just kept going. And then we have these two wonderful people that are um, this, this doctor and his wife who are building their own house, and then they hear all of these rumblings, and then they uh, one of them gets eaten immediately. The other one climbs into her car, which should be safe. I'm in a safe space, a car. When I'm in a car, I wear a seatbelt. That lets me know I'm safe. She climbs in, and the entire car gets eaten like my six-year-old brain was absolutely blown away nowhere was safe which we see later in in chang's grocery mart but the Uh thing that absolutely fucked me up was when we had our two lead lovers i mean heroes um who went out into uh, the wild blue yonder on a pair of horses and then the horses get attacked and one of them gets eaten and Mm -hmm. uh, Val and Earl just have to stand there and watch as we see the creature for the first time and it's eating a horse what I haven't mentioned yet is that until I was eight I grew up on a horse farm and so we had horses not only did we have horses but my one horse Apache looked exactly like the one that gets eaten not the one that gets away and rides off into the sunset the one that gets eaten Mary Beth so I was just completely devastated like run outside Apache are you okay <laughs> like sprinting outside why would I do that Mary Beth they would be able to feel oh, my that's movements true. that's true that's true I'm sorry they would be able to oh then you're frozen there's nothing you can do just you're oh. sitting there in fear and you can't go outside movie- And as the movie went on and then they started attacking from under the store, my feet went up on the couch because obviously (laughs) we're in a basement. They're going to come through. And then they get into Reba McIntyre and Burt's basement, Heather, Heather and Burt's basement and, and an attack in there. So obviously we are not safe. It is the first time as a child I felt not safe. I felt like anything could really happen to me and that I could have been victimized or that I could have been hurt or the things that I love and held dear could have been hurt. And that terrified me so, so much that um, the next time I had to go outside, I um, took the cushions off of my mother's patio furniture and essentially played the floor is lava with my entire backyard (laughs) and horse farm because obviously if my feet touched the ground the graboids would hear me and get me so I was taking cushions putting them down stepping on them (laughs) picking them up and putting them down with not a single amount of irony I was fully convinced this was the only way that I could make sure everyone was safe and what did I do I made a beeline for Apache and the other horses and I padlocked them in (laughs) and would not let them go out for days would not let the dog out the dog 
pooped in the house because I would not let the dog out because the graboids were going to get it. My dad worked construction. We had like boards around. I was using the boards to create an elaborate path that I would walk to go to the swing set um, because, you know, six-year-old brain, obviously when I'm on the swing set, I'm swinging and I'm not touching the ground. Duh, that's Duh. safe. But this was days of me not wanting to get in the car, not wanting me to go anywhere, not wanting my parents to leave the house. When my father went to go leave for work the next morning, I was crying. I made I made him walk on the boards to go to the car. And then I stood there at the front window to make sure that he made it out of the driveway okay. How long did this go on? Yeah. Days. Much oh, to say, chagrin. It now. was days. Um, it wasn't until my um, parents took and like opened up one of my dinosaur books and showed me that obviously tremors weren't anywhere in any of these books. And so, and and we you know we looked in the the, the um, different books of animals and things, and they were showing me that they were not real. They were not real. But that's how great the practical effects were. Mm. That as a small child, everything looked like it was totally in the realm of possibility and reality and that these things were out there. And we had a big kind of hill uh, on our property. And for me, that hill was just a sleeping graboid. It was under there. And that's why that hill was there. And obviously it was going to come out and it was going to kill my entire family. (laughs) So you hit on a lot of plot points that I definitely want to come back to. But I just I have to share my my childhood story about this film because you and I could not be different in regards to this film because I... It, none of this scared me. I, I must have seen it. It came out in when? 90? Uh, 89, 90. And I, I'm fairly certain I saw this in the theater. I have memories of seeing it in the theater. My memories are a little bit hazy, but so I was, I would have been like nine or 10 when I saw this film. And so it, I was more entranced with like the, the special effects. Um, but also, I I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I would I kept like a running tally in my mind. I had a very active imagination too. But in my mind, as long as I knew what could kill monsters or like what I could do to stay afra- away from them, like I came became, got like a running list of tallies on how to kill Freddy. Whether it was turning your back on him, whether it was giving him a kiss, whether it was like you know all of these things like holy water, all of these things. I like had this list of things that I could do to protect myself. In the same way it was with this. I wanted an elephant gun. <laughs> I wanted a cat. I wanted these things to protect myself and my friends from these things that obviously were real and lived under the ground. We just hadn't seen them because as they say in the movie, this is unprecedented. Why have we we've never seen any fossil records of these? So like in my mind, it's like these can happen at any time. I would jump from rocks to rock to like in practice because I was like, I'm, I'm going to be ready for this. And in fact, I almost lost my eye because of this movie. What the fuck? <laughs> So Terry, you listen, have listen. great eyes, so I'm very mad at you. <laughs> Listeners, I've never heard this fucking story, so I'm nope. ready. I've been waiting for I've been waiting. This is another one of the movies I've been waiting for. And it was like a memory that came to me as I was watching because I got the, the 4K edition when it came out, like in October or whatever. Mm. So like I was sat down, and I watched it. And it all came flooding back to me about like this this memory of when we I, I grew up in Alaska and from like the first eight, eight ish years of my life. And we 
when you live, we didn't live in Anchorage. We li- lived in a city out or a town outside of Anchorage, and our neighborhood was relatively new. So there was a lot of foundations in the neighborhood, and there's a lot of empty things with big rusty poles and spikes and stuff that people were building. And I had no friends because, again, we were like one of the first neighbors on the street, and I'm introverted, and I didn't realize I was getting different from other people. So there's like a lot of that kind of stuff going on. So I played by myself a lot. And I remember seeing this movie, and then there was this foundation like three doors down from us and i was playing around it because it was like the perfect thing it was like an underground there was like rocks and there was like big giant poles and stuff and i remember playing around the edge of it and pretending i was being chased like kevin bacon at the very end of this movie where the thing lunges and goes flying over the cliff and i jumped to the side missed my footing fell down and hit a pole like right in my cheekbone i hit like this metal pole that was sticking out like an inch from my eye <laughs> did it go in your face no it just like it, it hit it and like it, it bruised i got like really gnarly okay. bruised down there but no it, uh, i just but yeah i was like it's like a inch away from it poking my eye i was waiting for the punchline right that you like had a glass eye and <laughs> oh my god what if terry popped out his fucking eye i would have fucking dece- i would be deceased i'd be like i have to i have left my body i have ascended a long con just for this movie <laughs> i knew somebody growing up that had a glass eye because their mother had like you know got home from work and thrown the shoes and the heel went into his Shut eye and she lost his up. eye and he had a glass eye and i used to play with it all the time it was like <laughs> Terrifying. Sorry. Sidebar. Wait. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do the math on that. That the, the chances That's... of that angle perfectly puncturing your child's eye. Probably the same amount of of, of uh, mathematical equations of probabilities that I didn't poke up mine falling down in the <laughs> foundation. Like Jesus Christ! I should have like I, we we've talked many times in this podcast. I should not be here today because there are so many times in I was parading through the wilderness of alaska by myself as an eight-year-old not really knowing i could be dead in a minute eh, you're fine oh, terry i was the exact same and you know the wilds of pennsylvania but still i did this thing like i would be pissed at my parents i would take a pillowcase i would fill it with my favorite books and <laughs> snacks and whatever and i would take wembley and we would be running away <laughs> from home and there were multiple times where i would successfully like find an abandoned house and stay in it overnight or we'd play oh. in this old well. And an old well. <laughs> Darwinism should have taken me long ago. Terry, you and I are here by the grace of Alanis Morissette, the Almighty Lord. Mm. Hey, I will, I will pray on the altar of Morissette any day. <laughs> wow. I, I don't have a good story about this movie. I watched it a couple months ago for the first time. Oh, yay. But I loved it. I loved it. It was so fun. It it was like another one of those movies where I was like, "Eh, it's probably not like that creepy. And like, I wasn't scared, but it was it was tense. And I, I it was a lot more intense than I expected. Like, I don't think I really thought about how scary it is to like nothing is safe. Like you can't even go in a house like all the safe spaces of horror are completely obliterated, like literally obliterated. And I think that was a really terrifying thought of like oh what happens when there is nowhere safe to go and like you know the scene especially that i that always sticks out is when val earl and raw what's her name Rhonda. 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 
they're on the rocks and they're stranded on the rocks and it's like fuck like what do we do how do we Mm. get out of here and that that kind of like more existentially fear paired with the monster like really was much more terrifying than I expected when I was watching this film. And I was like also Reba McIntyre and her husband in this movie, like their whole sequence with, with their house and the shooting is just very good. So, oh, it's so good. It's a great fucking movie. Well, you know, it's so much fun. I think the reason why th- this movie it might be a little bit unassuming or might disarm you is that it, it starts off with the, the kind of, I'm going to call it a romantic comedy between Earl and Val of them waking up. And it's like, you know, jokey over like, well, who's cooking today? Are you cooking honey or am I cooking honey? And they have to do like, I can imagine a couple doing like rock, paper, scissors to figure out who's cooking for the day. They're sleeping in the back of the truck. You know, it's like, it's, it's funny. It's jokey. And then it starts to like slowly unspool the mystery of what's really going on you know there's the the seismographs are showing crazy activity mm-hmm. and then they find edgar who's dead up in the pole and it's yeah. not dead because he had a heart attack or whatever he's been he's dehydrated so he died over a course of like three or four days like there's all of these and that that moment that that face that shot up on his face i remember freaking me out as a kid just because it's like he looks so burnt and, and mangled and it, it probably doesn't hold up as much in 4k as it did back on like a crappy beta or vhs tape you know cover but like that moment and then it kind of goes from there and just slowly unspools the mystery bit by bit yeah and that also the thought of dying by dehydration is probably oh, in this horrifying. like horrifying prospect like that man and i think that's what got to me from the whole thing is like you're stuck in one place and you know what you need to survive but there's no way to get it so you're just like and he, you know, he could he have, you know, this like, oh, do you kill yourself? Like, do you fall mm-hmm. and let it happen? Do you see if, if you hold out and you're like holding out hope and then you literally like shrivel up, basically. Someone has to come by. like Exactly. And it's just, whew, it's much more like deeply scary the more you think about it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And again, as a child, a lot of existential dread. <laughs> um, but did you ever, did either of you ever see the, the deleted scene of the original opening with Edgar? Because had mm-hmm. that been in the movie, I would have probably not made it past that opening scene. No. So the opening, the original opening of the film, which was which was actually filmed, um, and it is an extra on the uh, the Arrow 4K set, Terry, for you to check okay, out. I have to watch else. it. It's um, Edgar is actually the first victim, um, and he goes home and he takes his horse and he puts his horse away in the barn. And then all of a sudden, he hears this noise and the rattling. And what happens? But it's a graboid eating his horse. But they don't <gasps> show it. It's just all the horse screaming in terror wow. and the barn shaking and him like kind of seeing all of the the dust and things kicked up. And then he starts running and running. And that's when he ends up going up the pole to go get to safety. And then it was supposed to cut to to the title. And there's you know more to it. But had I opened up with dead horse in the first three <laughs> to four minutes, I would not have made it to Kevin Bacon peeing in the window off of a cliff which is seconds later what an opening ladies and gentlemen um but yeah terry oh i know it's gorgeous this uh, the the escape is is amazing but i agree with you terry there's a lot of queer coding in this film when it comes to the two main characters i think um, val and earl are very much kind of that bickering married couple even when they're describing kind of the perfect women it's very much you know 
in large brush strokes and he's looking at a picture of a woman and describing her rather than well, what it and is. It's an unattainable list. It's like she has to have these character these characteristics. And it's like if I make a person that is so impossible, then that just allows me to stay more with you, Daddy Earl. Like this Daddy is Earl. This is what this is his this is his mind. This is his his way of of being able to stay with him and not have to commit to a woman is the fact that he has a list of unattainable characteristics. Has to be, you know, blonde, has to be this, has to be that. Like this perf his idea of perfection, perfection, Nevada. Um but I you know one of the things that like I picked up this time and I wrote in giant letters is that a woman literally arrives in town the same time as the tremors. The tremors is a subtext for unrest in the in an Earl and Val's relationship. Mm. This whole movie is predicated on the fact that a woman is potentially splitting up their marriage because if they'd only left town the day before, mm. they would be getting their maid in Bixby and living together a very happy queer life. But no. They had to wait, and now there's tremors and a woman causing trouble. Well, and Rhonda, as kind of a, a female lead, is just such an interesting character because, you know, we are introduced to her with the suntan lotion on her nose, mm-hmm. which is supposed to make her so woefully unattractive. And, mm-hmm. oh, what type of scientist are you? So, obviously, it's a woman with brains, so that could never be attractive to anyone, let alone these manly men like Val and Earl. Right. Well, and and also uh, they they constantly are kind of ignoring her. I love Mary Beth. You were talking about the being stuck on the rock moment, and I love that they're trying to come up with with a plan to to go ahead, and they're completely ignoring the fact that she has already have it solved. She already has the whole situation solved with the the pole vaulting, and she's like, hey, "Guys, I got an idea," and everyone's like, "Oh, well, we just got to come up with a plan. We got to come up with a plan." And they're so they're not used to having another person in their relationship offering advice that they are completely ignoring this woman and her perfectly wonderful plan to escape total bickering married couple oh absolutely 100 the lengths that they go to as the film goes on to save each other to be, to, to, yes. to be there for each other scissors rock paper who has to do it well i won no i'm gonna do it no shove you out of the way now Aww. kevin bacon's running through the dirt to save earl's life i mean save it's, his daddy exactly and then earl's the one that comes up with the idea that saves kevin uh that saves that saves val and so it's definitely this amazing relationship that these two men have regardless of what it may be on screen or off um but this relationship that these two have is what helps not only them but the entire most of the town survive except for poor stupid nestor why would you get onto a tire oh even as a six-year-old i was like "Mm -mm, mm -mm." and in he goes (laughs) okay so six-year-old the tire is no good but your uh uh little cushions are okay and you want to know why? Because they don't have <laughs> holes in them, Terry. Duh. <laughs> Boards, cushions, no holes. Graboids okay. could obviously not. But a tire, big old hole. It's a very good point. Okay. That's a very, very good point. That. Exactly. You also, can. Uh, I logic. finally got to say big old hole on Scarred for Life. It's just Yay, my goal achieved. big old hole. Um, can you talk about the Graboids design? Which, oh. I mean, you already mentioned phallic, yes, giant penis creatures just booping around you know 
Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> they are this ap- they they are this personification of um, masculinity that is very 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 phallic, and they are going through um, the the dirt and penetrating this town uh, and and these people and, and affecting their lives in ways that they didn't want or need um, again and again, and it's definitely something that there's definitely undercurrents there. Even the original designs of the groundboards apparently had a foreskin to them. Uh, I was going to say, I could kind of like, I was, you, when you were talking about phallic, I was like, well, I mean, you could kind of make a, a leap that the way the mouth unfurls, it could, it's a little, it's a little I, I mean, the, the, the kind of tongue tentacly things themselves are rather phallic, but apparently the original design of the Graboids had an exoskeleton that retracted and a lot of the female members of the production team went, uh, no, 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 no. Um, as a nice Jewish boy, I would not have understood at the age of six. Um, however, <laughs> it definitely would have been um, a weird little horror sexual awakening seeing all these weird penis monsters. That would have been a sight to see, I have to say. I definitely also thought, because I hadn't seen Tremors, I thought that the Graboids and the Sarlacc from Star Wars were the same thing. There's a lot of... Don't... I don't. I cannot explain to you how I somehow thought these movies from two very different universes were the same thing. But here we are. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I probably had a similar similar thought because I'm now now that I'm thinking about it, man, the 80s had like a lot of worms. I mean, we had <laughs> a lot of worms. We had um, Return of the Jedi. We had this. We had Beetlejuice. I don't remember what year Beetlejuice came out, but we had Beetlejuice and we had Dune. Like, oh yeah, Dune. all of these mm-hmm. these movies coming out in like that decade ish time frame, and there's a lot of really gnarly worms going on. And it's interesting because the whole concept behind this was was Land Shark, that Mm -hmm. these were, and that was the original working title, Um, and these were supposed to do for the land what Jaws did for the sea, Um, Mm -hmm. and to poor little six-year-old me, it did, but... When you think about it, this is also just top-tier daylight horror. Yes! Um, Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Right? The entire thing takes place at during the day, um, and we have no respite from it other than going into the basement of Bert and Heather, um, which even there, you're not safe. And, and the, uh, you bringing up the, the design and, and the practical effects, Mary Beth, that sequence is incredible. Mm-hmm. And how they filmed it with miniatures, um, but did full takes cutting back and forth uh, between the two, the effects for the time were really spectacular. That that scene was my favorite growing up as a kid, especially with them just unloading all of their their guns on it and anything they can grab. They're just boom, boom, boom. And that was where like I was like, I need to get myself an elephant gun. Ten year old me had to have who I don't like guns, but ten year old me had to have an elephant gun because that was the thing that could stop them. You shoot them in the mouth and, you know, yeah, OK, probably the other bullets probably helped weaken them down before that one. But in my mind, it's like, no, two shots from that elephant gun and these graboids are gone. 100% I flat out asked my dad if we had a gun we didn't but I knew where my dad kept his machete um, so I may or may not have pulled that out at one point and then had a stern talking to coupled with a wooden spoon um, however um, however uh, you don't touch people's machetes without asking unless your name is Jason 
learned that at an early age. Um, but it's definitely one of those things that, that it's interesting because in this, it's, it throws back to a lot of those really old, great classic monster movies where you defend yourself with, with whatever you have around. Um, kind of like them um, and uh, uh, tarantulas and, and other things where um, there were just these, these creatures and you just grabbed whatever you could. So for me, you know, knowing that it was sound and, and these different things that we could use to, uh, to to distract them. I fully took bags of, um, I think they were egg noodles, and I would shake them and throw them uh, so that the graboids <laughs> would go that way and away from wherever I was. My poor mother, I can't even imagine going out and seeing her cushions ruined, food strewn across the lawn, uh, the horses locked up and not able to go out, the dog shit on the floor um <laughs> and all because six-year-old justin got a little 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 scared i love that i love that though but okay so creature features you mentioned earlier that this was doing for land what jaws did for water when i was when i'm watching this film i see a lot of callbacks to jaws uh from particular there's there, there's the way that there's a lot of not showing the monster and kind of slow unveiling of the monster where first we see, you know, just the little eel. Well, first we don't see anything. It's just something, the ground's moving. And then we see like the little eel coming out and it's like, Oh, there might be small ones. And then we see the, the giant size of it later. But then there are also a couple of the deaths, like in particular, poor doctor, when he gets pulled down underneath and he's screaming, Oh God, help me. You know, it reminded me of the opening kill in, in jaws. And then when Kevin Bacon is on the rock and he's tapping the ground with the stick, it reminds me of, of Brody chum in the water and not paying attention. And then there's the things coming out of there. There's just like a lot of those little moments that the way this is structured reminded me a whole lot of, of jaws. And I think this, even the poster of like the, the giant, eel thing coming up the ground is like a, a jaws homage from the poster and oh, 100 percent, yeah there's just so many little tiny things there that i'm like oh i see what you're doing with this movie as an adult that i didn't notice as a kid another thing i thought about like not about jaws, like so i guess sort of about jaws is like the male friendship angle and like we talked about them being like mm. lovers but there also is this kind of like wanting to it's almost like oh look at these two kind of rednecks and like kind of that idea of masculinity and kind of breaking it down a little bit with their friendship and having that kind of really grow throughout the film is something I definitely appreciated when I watched it. I, again, I watched it as an adult that so I thought a lot about th about that a lot more than probably I would as a kid, but I, I thought that was a really interesting aspect of the film as well. I loved Earl and his, uh, his kindness, I guess, in a lot of ways, like he does not seem the kind of uh, he, he's first introduced to sort of the rough around the edges, you know, cowboy feature, but he's very kind. And he's very even with with Kevin, when he we're with Valentine, when he's poking him, Earl is is does it at a place of like love, you can tell. And I love the his catchphrase of like, pardon my French, where he's just constantly like spouting off a curse word. And they're like, oh, pardon my French. I got to pull it back. I just I, <laughs> Fred Fred Ward does such a great job with this character. Absolutely. And there's actually a wonderful feature, again, on the Arrow 4K, where they have all of the uh, made-for-TV dub-overs of the curse words that oh, they yeah. do. And it's just a montage of all of the things that they have to say instead, because he got a potty mouth. My little six-year-old virgin ears were on fire. 
Well, and this movie originally was going to be rated R because of the language, and then they they edited out a bunch of like they made it Mother Humper and all that kind of stuff because it it originally did get an R rating for f words and f words. Like I'm self censoring. I'm, I'm saying fuck all the time. Like the f word. <laughs> the f word. Oh, oh no. We don't say that word here. No, we no, don't. No, we don't say no, no, no cursing here on this here podcast. Very much not. <laughs> Can we the talk about Bert and Heather? Yeah, I was about to say the, the characters are so wonderful and so w- well developed from minute one. You kind of know who they are, but then as the film goes on, they just get so much more lived in. And Bert and Heather in, in their relationship and how they trust and support one another as the film goes on, um, their arsenal, the reason that you find out that they're living there so that they can be off the grid. Um, they're just these incredible characters. And again, Reba McIntyre, that was a big selling point for me to get this PG film home. I love her. <laughs> I love her. She's and it was like, you know, I feel like I have such an image of Reba McIntyre and then seeing her in this movie, like just fucking gun toting bad bitch behavior. I'm like, I would like more of this, please. Right. Oh, <laughs> I, love- I wish, wish, wish she had done the sequel. They had originally pitched for Reba McIntyre and Kevin Bacon to come back. Um, she had to do a tour and Kevin Bacon made the worst decision of his career. He did this really wonderful movie that no one remembers called Apollo 13 instead of Trevor's (laughs) 2. But, you know, I could have done the entire franchise surrounded by Reba McIntyre. And this was her first film role. Like, this was the first time that she had acted ever. And she is perfection. (laughs) I I love... It's such a small line, but every time I I see this movie, I always think about it where she's like, she yells magazine to Bert. And it seems like such a stupid thing, but she's like... I'm I'm here. Give me those. Give me that ammo. I need it. I'm out. Like it's it's such a shorthand conversation between the two of them that they know what they're doing. They're they're handling the situation. They've been kind of prepping for the situation. Although I do think it's funny when Bert's like you know driving when when they're driving away from from the place and and he's like where was it? I wrote this down because I love it. Oh yeah, a thousand gallons of gas, air filtration, water filtration, Geiger counter, bomb shelter underground goddamn monsters like (laughs) i just love that you know he's prepping for doomsday he's prepping for all the shit to happen and at the end of the day it's under the ground with them i love i love that little inversion but again like that again that i didn't think about like the nile again the nihilism in this movie that again you probably don't really think about but then you really like oh shit like this guy has spent his whole life prepping for everything for every scenario like was prepped and then surprise it comes from underneath you and you can't do shit to stop it at least not with what you have like that's fucking crazy and no one in that town is equipped and also can we talk about how diverse that town is for having a population of 10 (laughs) it's like in the middle of fucking nowhere (laughs) right we have we have this incredibly confident uh latino man miguel we've got you know this amazing entrepreneur walter chang by the way jaws homage gets his quint moment Mm. He gets pulled in the mouth of the monster and pulled underground, just like Quint did in Jaws. Oh my god, Very he does! <gasps> I didn't even think about that. Oh, that that again terrified me because, as Mary Beth said earlier, like that's a safe space. You go in the house, you're good. It comes up through the floor, like <laughs> whoa! It blew my little mind. And then you had single mom Nancy and little Mindy on her damn pogo stick. I never, never used my pogo stick ever again. And that's not (laughs) even a lie. I never touched it. 
I never, I never had, never had one. I was not, I was too clumsy. I was not, I was not meant for that. I, yeah, I remember riding my bike down a hill and going flying off the handlebars of it in Alaska and scratching up the side of my face. Like I just was not, pogo stick was not my cards. I was too scared of pogo sticks. I didn't like them. They scared me. Something about them was not good. <laughs> you just knew. You I knew just that knew. a graboid. You were like off a bad aura. I'm a <laughs> bouncing meal. I will stick to my skip it. Thank you very much. Um, oh, I, skip I'm not it. fucking joking. That's exactly what I had. I had my skip it, oh, and God. that was what I did instead of a pogo stick. I was so funny. I was gonna be like, I just stuck with my fucking skip it, and it was great. No, I, I again not. I'm clumsy. No way. <laughs> oh, that's what almost I, died oh, I was, on a bicycle. <laughs> I feel like, but I feel like everyone has a story about when they almost died on a bicycle. It's like a rite of passage as a kid. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, it is a rite of passage. But okay, I could th- three just immediately come to mind. The one where I decided to take my bike off of a uh, skateboard ramp, going super slow, and I went whoop and thud super and knocked slow. The air out. No. Yeah, air out, knocked the air out of me. The one time where I was raising someone down a hill and flew over the front of my bike and scraped my face up. Or another one where I panicked going down an S-curve on like a hill and just went, oh, fuck, and ran right into a wall. Like, again, should not be here today. So, yeah, skip it, pogo sticks, all that kind of shit. N- not not for me as a kid. <laughs> Neither were elephant guns, apparently, so that's a relief, because Darwinism really would have taken Terry had that been (laughs) the case. Quite possibly. I really hope, I'm picturing your father turning to you and saying, I wouldn't give you a gun if this were World War III. So being like, like, (laughs) like Burton Melvin giving him the empty gun. Which was great. (laughs) I love that moment, by the way. The gun's not loaded. (laughs) Bert, you asshole. (laughs) Could you all live in perfection, Nevada? Absolutely not. No, not in the least. I need all of the amenities um, and uh, did not see a gay bar. Um, did no. not see any uh, single gay men since Val and Earl are taken. Um, mm. And my rule of thumb is that if it's more than five subway stops, it's long distance dating. It will never work. So no, <laughs> not. Yeah. Second question. Where do the Graboids come from? The pits of hell. Okay. <laughs> I always thought in my, you know, love of this film, they've never really explained it until you get to the later ones and they're genetically altered and blah, blah, blah craziness. But um, in the initial one, they never tell you. And I always just assumed we're out in the desert. They practiced nuclear warheads and there were so Mm -hmm. many other films that were explained away that, oh, okay, there was some sort of um, nuclear incident and the radiation and this, that and the other things. But it seems that they really just do come from Mother Nature. And as they get later in the films and there's a life cycle of the Graboid. Have you seen any of the later films, Terry or Mary Beth? That was... That was going to be my, my, no. my last question because um, I I know I have seen the second one. I remember nothing about it except that I think that one has ass blasters in it. Ooh. Third one's ass blasters. Ass blasters for the third one. Okay. Yeah, shriekers. the second one is shriekers? the Shriekers, which are little tremors with legs that run around. The third one has... Excuse me? <laughs> 
once they get to a point where they uh, can no longer survive as the Graboids, they then give off these three sacks that have three little shrieker ones that run around and scream and that <laughs> that uh, can can get you pretty much anywhere and then the third one they grow wings and they have <gasps> they call them ass blasters because they use uh, essentially fire farts to to blast <laughs> off and get off the ground this is a very serious um franchise Mary Beth yeah very much so well now I, I have to watch them cuz I did not know ass blasters were a part of this franchise the third one I will say is super fun because they bring back everyone that survived the first one except for Kevin Bacon and Reba McIntyre. So they really do get almost the entire cast back. And it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's definitely probably the second best one in the, in the group. Fuck um, yeah. I then did they not just know keep going. until recently that there were seven. There's seven? There's yep. seven. Oh, don't worry. Jamie Kennedy shows up uh, in some of the later ones. Uh, also, avoid four at all costs. It's a prequel, and they have Burt Gummer's great-great-grandpappy. Well, because he kind of takes over the series, right? Isn't he sort of like the one continuity between all seven of them? Yeah, he's in every single one of them, including this this last one that uh, went straight to Netflix with uh, John is it Hater, Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, that's fucking right! Yeah, oh my so God. that one's chilling on Netflix if you're really bored one night. It's not good. <laughs> but I, I love uh... that this little, little franchise that could, you know, after this one movie, it did not do well in theaters. And then it just made so much money um, from little six-year-olds lying to their family about what it's rated um, and made so much money in VHS sales that they then had a two, a three, a four, a five prequels they go to canada and one of them and there's ice ones oh that's like, right i saw the i saw the cover i think for the ice cold ones. day in hell cold day in hell yep dun 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 it's just one of those franchises that doesn't get the uh the love because it just realized what it was real quick and just leans so far into camp love that i i need to watch them i i, I like i said i know i've seen the second one but i remember absolutely nothing about it except that i think fred is back um in it and I think that's like literally the only thing I, I knew about it. But again, that was like a six year break between the original and this and that sequel. Well, the thing is, is that they actually um, filmed it in 1994 oh, and they? they were not going to release it theatrically, but they did a test screening uh, to see how it would do. And it did gangbusters. They mm. loved it. The audience loved it so much. And the studio was like, oh, we didn't mean for that to happen. So then they sat on it for two years and then dumped it on VHS in 96. Wow. Huh. Wow. Wow. Right. Studio interference, even getting you in the 90s. Some Go things figure. never change. <laughs> but I will say I had the privilege of getting to meet Kevin Bacon because he is also a musician with his brother, the Bacon Brothers. Um, and when they came and played the Philadelphia Folk Festival, I got to drive them in a golf cart. Ooh, uh, you. And because I had trapped him, uh, I was able to tell him how much that I loved Tremors. Uh, <laughs> and I had him sign uh, my copy of, of Tremors. Um, and I loved it so much. And then he got up on stage, played a set, and a drunk woman screamed at the top of her lungs I saw your dick in Hollow Man and Kevin Bacon just leaned forward into the mic and said thank you <laughs> on that beautiful note do we want to give this movie a rating out of five we absolutely do 
Thank you. Uh. <laughs> um, all right, Terry. <laughs> Sorry. How many pardon my Frenches out of five do you give tremors? No beating around the bush. This is a four and a half, maybe a five pardon my Frenches out of, out of five for me. This movie, I... It's hard to divorce the the nostalgia from this one because it was one of my favorites growing up when I was when I when I was a kid and it didn't it did almost cost me an eye so I have to absolutely love it because otherwise it was for naught. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think I think it's a perfect mix of like that sort of horror comedy that that straddles both. There's some horrifying moments. There's a lot of funny. There's a lot of heart in it. I think the practical effects are great. I love the cast. I just. I was so glad to hear, Mary Beth, that, that you as an adult with no nostalgia attached to this also really enjoyed it because, because you know, you you start to when you're doing this podcast and we're starting to look back on films that meant so much to you as a kid, there is that kind of rose colored glasses. But I, I don't think this is one of those. I think this movie, this movie is fucking awesome. I love it so much. So eh, what, what the hell? Five. I'm giving a five part of my French is out of five. What about you, Mary Beth? Um, I'm going to give a four, pardon my French, out of five. Uh, this movie's phenomenal. It's so much fun. It's scarier than I expected. The effects are amazing, and so are the performances. I think I don't have the same same nostalgia, so I don't see it as as a five necessarily, but it's yeah. damn close. It's just such a fun film, and I'm you know I'm glad that my fiance made me watch it, and I'm glad I get to talk about it again here because it really is, I think, a movie that. I slept on and is an amazing creature feature that I know mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about, but I think deserves even more love than I think it gets now. Yeah. Um, Justin, you have the final word. How many pardon my Frenches out of five do you give drummers? I, I think mean, I know uh, the answer. <laughs> I am actually going to go with four and a half. Uh, okay. Par- okay. Pardon mon Francais out of five. Um, and the reason is, is that um, it, terrified the shit out of me and <laughs> I will hold it against it until the day I die so it only gets four and a half um, but it definitely was the birth of my love of practical effects that carried over into um, the thing and, and so many other films thereafter mm. and I think Tremors effects work still to this day holds up so well the comedy holds up so well the central romance between the two men holds up well between Kevin Bacon and uh, Finn Carter not, not so much which Sidebar, Finn Carter got arrested for grand theft larceny for stealing a bajillion people's credit cards and a car right before the pandemic. Seriously? (laughs) Yes. I was like, where is she now? And I Googled and went, ooh, (laughs) there's a mugshot. Oh, I felt so bad. Um, But, you know, this is a film that has such a great place in so many people's hearts, including Kevin Bacon's. He had his first kid um, while this was being filmed. He had to leave set on one of their final days of filming because Kira went into labor. Mm -hmm. Um, So... It's just one of those things that, you know, this film means a lot to a lot of the people that made it. And to me, as somebody that just was terrorized by it in my dreams and nightmares and backyard and horse farm for so long. um, (laughs) I love, 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 love it. And I appreciate y'all giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Well, thank you so much for for joining us to talk about Tremors. Uh, Where can us just find you and what do you have that you'd like to plug? Um, I can be found on Letterboxd and Twitter at Jay Nordell. Um, I can be found on Peloton at Pelotoni Colette, um, oh which I really just wanted to God. say that. Oh, my God. I'm so mad I didn't uh, think of that. That's amazing. And I can be found on Instagram at uh, Mogwai47, Mogwai as in Gizmo, and 47 Aww. as in the number of times that I got stung when I stepped on a yellow jacket's nest. Uh, so that's my lucky number, because all the bad luck is out of that 
number. All the bad luck happened already. I totally got my girl and now I don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, so at Mogwai47 on Instagram, um, we have the 59 and a half Philadelphia Folk Festival um, is going to be taking place uh, this August um, and it is going to be available online so you can stream it from anywhere in the world um, and that's going to be August uh, 21st and 22nd. Uh, you can get more details at folkfest.org. Um, we also have digital music classes that you can take from anywhere uh, in the world as well, including everything from songwriting, guitar, ukulele, fiddle, um, and so many other things that um, even as the world is reopening, it's good to kind of hone your skills a little bit and you can find out more about that at pfs.org and if you don't mind me being able to plug my little sister is opening up a comic and book store in Baltimore uh, so Ooh. if you're in the DC metro area uh, she and, and uh, Baltimore region she is opening up Dreamers and Make Believers which is a, a comic and book store uh, that is going to be opening up in August uh, you can find out more at dreamersbooks.com and the coolest thing is that she she has um, this uh, book basket um, that's going to be near the front called Gay It Forward, where it's going to have all sorts of LGBT books that are available free of charge. Um, so no questions asked. If you or someone in your life uh, needs a little something queer uh, for whatever reason, being able to just go in and not have to have a receipt show up um, or being able to take something and, and read it, I'm really, really proud of. And she's going to have tons so and sweet. tons of horror uh, comics as as well because she of course had to watch all of the things that I wanted to watch <laughs> growing up because that's how life works when you're siblings. I love that's that. amazing. Um, so listeners, you've heard from us, but you want to hear from you. Well, what was your experience with tremors? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McGandrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>